Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester at home with me, Clint Boone. Across this mini-series, we're talking to some inspirational Mancunians to continue to celebrate the spirit of our city whilst we're in lockdown. This week, I'm joined by Mancunian actress... Maxine Peake. Maxine tells me about growing up in Bolton and discovering music in her youth. I think the first band I ever got really into was a style council, but more because of the lyrics, because I'd always been engaged politically as a kid. They were a big influence, and I just thought they were really cool because they, they looked a bit anarchic, a bit two fingers up. And she describes why she loves Manchester so much. We did produce so much. The great, Greater Manchester Lancashire, you know what I mean? And I think sometimes people tend to forget it gives a great pleasure to welcome to Humans Excess Manchester, uh, Manchester-born and bred actress who's given us some of the most magical and memorable moments that we've ever witnessed on stage, TV and film. And it turns out she's also a shit-hot DJ as well. Maxine <laughs> Peake, welcome to Humans, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, and it's an honour to be here. It's great to finally meet you at last. I was just saying, I always, I always wanted our first meeting to be a bit more... Uh, bit more conventional than this, you know, but through the wonders of technology, uh, we're doing it now right in the middle of this lockdown. How are you getting on with the lockdown, Maxine, generally? Um, all right. You know, I feel as a luckier when you've got a bit of space and you've got a garden, those things that, you know, you take for granted. If you, you know, when you've got them, you go, yeah, I was doing a theatre job, which got stopped sort of halfway through. You know, you was still getting away, you know, half away from it, blah, blah, blah. I just feel very sort of fortunate and touch wood. Nobody I know has been, you know, I've had a couple of friends who've had it, but are better. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, I am ready to, you know, I'm getting a little bit, it'd be nice to see a few more people now. Yeah. I saw you showing your dog off. You've got a dog, haven't you? Yeah, I'm always, yeah, Castro. He's just what? Castro. He's just one Castro. Castro. <laughs> after, after Fidel, yeah, obs. Right. Feel free to include him in the conversation. We've had it. We had somebody with a dog the other day. Ben Taylor, promoter, brought his dog on the uh, onto the interview. So dogs are welcome. And uh, any yeah. family members that might be knocking about. But let's talk about your story, how it started. What kind of a kid were you? Were you precocious? Were you funny? Were you trouble at school? A bit, a bit of trouble, but I think it was just energy. Funny I used to call me Mad oh, I feel embarrassed when you go, used to call me Mad Max. Well, you, you know, but just because <laughs> I, th- I was a show off, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? And My nicknames were off the teachers, this were Goon and Loon. That's what the teachers called me. So, But did you enjoy <laughs> school, Maxine? Um, 
you know what? I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I didn't do, I didn't wag school. Do you say what we say? You used to wag it when you miss a couple of lessons. I wasn't really into that because I was too frightened of missing out. Yeah. I wasn't academic, but I liked going and seeing my mates and having a laugh. You know, that's what school was. It was, a, you know, it was the social aspect of it. So you're very extrovert as a kid, a bit of a show off as well, were you? Yeah, I think it was a mixture of being, and I was a big kid as well. So I think you're expected to be funny. People don't expect much. You know, I was quite plump, as they say. Right. Um, so that was my niche, you know what I mean? To make people laugh. And what were your sort of favourite subjects or the sort of subjects that you prospered at? I liked, well, we did drama, but it was interesting because it was when we sort of took it as um, an option. When I got to the fourth and fifth year, there was three girls and 20 lads because the lads, it was all the naughty boys used to do drama because they could get away with, you know, messing about. So I did enjoy it. Uh, art, I liked all those subjects. English, you know, I, li I liked them. I wouldn't say I were mad about any subject, really. And did you have ambitions as a kid? Did you know what you wanted to do or did it all happen sort of spontaneously? I think I always wanted to, I wanted to be a comedian first yeah. before I became an actor, before wanting to act. And then that I realised that looked like a bit of hard work because you had to write your own stuff and, you know, standing up there on your own. Um, and I'd always had a grand scheme of going to, I wanted to go to university and meet, you know, do one of these where you meet, you know, I'd read stories where people had met, you know, a gang of them and they'd become, go on and do like a comedy troupe with, you know, that was my, but then I didn't get into university, so that. What about music? Did music play a big part in your youth? Yeah, can I just say the first gig I ever went to was in Spiral Carpets in Liverpool. Where was that? Liverpool? Yeah, at the Royal Court. Royal Court, I remember that gig. Yeah, I think we only played it once, but I remember that night. Yeah, yeah. Were you screaming at the front? Well, no, me and my mate Cheryl were in the middle with our 32-inch flares. Um, we'd never, we were only, we were 15 and yeah. a little bit naive. And when everyone started mooing, and moving forward, she went one way, I went the I got pinned to the floor by my flowers. Oh, brilliant. So she, we lost each other, but I had the best time. I have to say as well, my so my school badge, I went to West Orton High School, it yeah. was a cow's head on a five-bar gate, because the story was, if you're from West Orton, it's a little town outside Bolton, you're called a cow yed, because the, the old myth is a farmer had built this brand new five-bar gate, yeah. and his prized cow had got his head stuck in it. <laughs> and he worked out which was more expensive and the gate was more expensive than the cow so we cut the cow's head off oh brilliant so, so our badge was the cow's head so right. when when we left school you know and you all go mad and write all over everybody's shirts and throw eggs and flour yeah and i climbed up onto our sign at school and wrote coolers oh brilliant <laughs> <laughs> that's a good story yeah under the cow's head yeah so there you go I mean, it was just so I was a, I'm a, I was a big fan and I still am a big fan. Of, well, I'm a big know. fan of your work as well. And what else music wise was the music before that was was Mad Chester the first thing that sort of inspired you musically? I think the first band I ever got really into was the Style Council, but more because of the lyrics, because I'd always been sort of engaged politically as a kid. I had a very political granddad who was in the Communist Party and he was a massive influence on me. Yeah. So when Red Wedge was out, all those kind of bands, but but the Style Council to me, you know, Walls Come Tumbling Down, I remember sort of hearing that and the lyrics to that and getting our favourite shot. So that was the first. And round out on our estate, there was lots of, you know, new wave mods and scooter boys. 
that I wanted to impress as well, you know what I mean? So there was like, you know, The Who and I got into, you know, sort of that kind of music, you know, going to Manchester Underground Market, getting myself some bowling shoes and doing... Oh, well, I, I never, you know, never had you down as a mod, but it makes sense now when I think about it. Well, I think it was what was what was out there and what you could see was visible. And yeah. there was, so around our way, most people, you know, there was a, a big gang of sort of new wave mods, you know, and, and scooter boys who sort of crossed over and rude boys, you know. So it was, they were a big influence. And I just thought they were really cool because they, they looked a bit anarchic. Yeah. It was a bit two fingers up when I was about 10 or 11. So it was all, yeah. And did you ever meet Paul Will? No, no, no. I saw him once in a supermarket queue in London. I was stood behind him. <laughs> Got a little bit, went a bit, a bit weird, you know, like. Well, you get on well with him as well, you know, he's a top geezer and I should introduce you, in fact, I'll introduce you. Yeah, we'll do an email introduction to you. So after college, you, you went to RADA, I believe, is that right, in, in London? I did, I went to that day in London. I, I went, so I went to Salford Tech first, Salford College of Technology, before it got amalgamated into the university. And then it took me three years. I was trying to get into university and I didn't. And then in the end... I decided to have a go for drama schools. And in the third year of trying, RADA used to do auditions at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. So I went, oh, it's only 275 return on the train from Bolton. Um, I'll give it a go. And I think, because I was so blase, I didn't think I'd get in. I thought it was just a bit of fun. Yeah. I, I think that sort of, you know, somewhere that worked. I think I came across as confident rather than just, this is funny, you know what I mean? Did you tell you on the day that you're in, or did you have to wait for the, the letter through the post? No, so the, the, I got a letter saying you got a recall, so I had to go to a workshop in London, and I used to work as a lifeguard really? <laughs> at Howitch Leisure Centre with Paddy McGuinness. I mean, what's happened to him now? <laughs> you know. That sounds like a sitcom in itself, doesn't it? I know. It, well, it's a bit British Empire. Yeah. And I remember being in the staff room, and the phone rang, and somebody said, Hey Max, there's a posh guy on the phone for you. He says he's from Rada, and I was going, <laughs> Oh, sod off, you know. I picked it and it was the principal saying, you know, you've got, well, I'd got a conditional place as long as I could get the money. So I just went, oh, well, thanks, but that's not going to happen. You know, single parent family. And, and then I got put up for a scholarship, which fortunately I, I got. So I got my fees and maintenance paid for so I could go, go to drama school. And you were thinking mainly comedy at this point still, or were you thinking acting? Yeah, I think still I just thought, oh, I'll do funny stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I got to Radu and there was a lot more funnier people than me, so I thought about it. <laughs> I think of somewhere else. And was there any other northerners? Did you say your mate got in at the same time? So I went with my friend Diane Morgan, right. who's a um, brilliant actress, you know, uh, you know, famous for Philomena Conk. So we'd met at Manchester Met, auditioning for the theatre school there, and we hadn't got in. We, I'd auditioned three times, she'd auditioned twice. So we said, come on, we'll audition for Radu. So I got it at Raja. Diane got at a school in Essex called East 15, which was a really sort of, it was, it was really cool, sort of experimental. Um, John Littlewood sort of exponents went, started that. I was going to say, like, was there any other northern accents at Raja? Oh, yeah. So, because Di Diane was, Diane's from Kersley. And yeah. anyway, so Diane's done brilliantly. And she did stand up for a long time. And then, obviously, as a comedy actress and an actress and does Charlie Booker screen wipes, amongst many things. Yeah. Um, but I remember meeting her at a Manchester Met audition. Go, my God, she's amazing. So I sort of went up to her and told her, and then we became good friends. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, there was a few. There was uh, Gary and Helen who were from Liverpool. There was Phil who's from Derbyshire, and Matt Story who's from Middleton. I think that was. I think yeah. So it wasn't. 
as I thought I'd get there and it'd just be lots of people whose father was, you know, laird somewhere up in Scotland. <laughs> I was slightly disappointed. I'm guessing by then, though, Northern accents were pretty, a lot more accepted, weren't they, in, in the media, in broadcasting than they were 20 years earlier. You know, it wasn't as frowned upon to have an accent like, you know, a proper accent like we've got. I, to be honest, at drama school, they did say, if you don't lose your accent, you'll get typecast. <laughs> you know, I was sort of told that. And then there, there were still issues. I remember auditioning and some of the things people used to say, you know, you'd go in, you'd go, you know, she's been educated, you know, about your character. And you'd be like, sorry. You know, and they'd say to me, can you move your accent a little bit down the M25, please? You know, there's a lot of that <laughs> went on. And she's a doctor. You know, I've, I've said this to her before, but when I did that TV series Silk and I went in and the director said to me, but what are you going to do about your accent? She's a barrister. And I was like, I'm sorry. And, you know, and I did sort of posh it up, I think, in the first series and then I just let it slip by the second and third yeah. series. But... um. Yeah, so there was still this, and there still is, I still talk to young actors now. And I think women get it a bit more than men, you know, that your accent will, you know, you get typecast and it's still, if you've got a regional accent, you're therefore working class, mm. which I am, and I'm really proud of, but I think there's lots of people in Manchester who are middle class and have accents, they don't seem to get it. They think that defines your financial and educational sort of bracket is your accent. Yeah. I'm a yeah. fan of the Northern accent now. I, did, I used to hate my voice, but I don't mind now. It's making me a living, so... Oh, you've got a fantastic accent. <laughs> you have. There's some good ones up here. I love, I love a good local accent. And your first gig, ironically, your first proper gig was with somebody else, very famous Northern, Victoria Wood, who must have been a bit of an idol growing up, I'm guessing, for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, as a kid, her and Julie Walters, I was obsessed with. So that was... I remember getting the audition through and... Just thinking, I never even thought about getting the job. I just thought, well, I'm just going to sit in the same room as Victoria Wood. That's enough for me, you know. Um, <laughs> so that was so when you know when the when I got the job, I didn't quite know what to do. You know, it was a real shock. It's funny looking at your at your CV because you've been at it for probably 25 years. Is it 24, 25 years since you, you started? You like across stage TV and film. Your CV in each of those platforms is like constant from the mid 90s to now and it's like you just look at your stage work alone and you think how could anybody have a career in tv and film alongside the amount of stage work you've done and then your tv body of work is the same it's like it's constant isn't it do you ever stop or you just have you just been at it since 1995 whatever it was when you stepped out of college i i sort of left drama school and i did sort of non-stop for about two years and then i had a year where i didn't i couldn't get arrested as they say you know i couldn't get any jobs. I remember having a brilliant mate, Charlotte Emerson, who, uh, she had a mate who was directing Old City, Keith Ball, and uh, she said, I remember sat in a coffee shop with her one day, just crying, going, I'm never going to work again. She went, oh, I'll give Keith a ring, he'll give you a job. So, I, you know, and then people were just very, you know, people helped me out. Um, and then I sort of got started up again. Um, but I do have chunks of time. It's interesting, you sort of do stuff, and sometimes, you know, I made a thing for tv nearly three years ago now that hasn't gone out yet it's probably right. not going to go out till next year and then sometimes everything comes out at once and people go oh you haven't stopped but, <laughs> I, I, you know, but I don't like I'm not very good at doing as especially getting older doing job to job I find that really like you know I mean I don't know like you do be gigging that I don't know you do it 
gig after gig. It must be exhausting. It is. And it, you know what? Until two months ago, because people always said to me, is the three of you? Because like some nights I'd literally be doing three gigs on a Saturday night, two or three gigs on a Friday night, as well as all the radio stuff. But it's because I've always done it without stopping. And I always said to people, yeah, but if I stop for a month, I'll probably struggle to get moving again. And this yeah. lockdown now, I'm working at home all the time. I'm doing DJ sets from home live, which is great. I'm doing a radio show from home. I'm doing stuff like this over, you know, Zoom and that. And I'm loving it. And I'm sort of dreading having to go back onto that hamster wheel of, you know, Clint the DJ running from gig to gig. Yeah, yeah back to you. So the, some of the characters you've played over the years, like some of, some of the most like powerful things I've ever seen in TV and film, particularly uh, like the Myra Inley and Sino Evil, uh, Nelly, Peter Lou, amazing, Veronica and Shameless. Funny Cow, Nico, these characters that you play, all very, very sort of extreme female characters. Is that the kind of the kind of character or the kind of script you more gravitated towards when it's put in front of you? Yeah, no, definitely. Because I remember when I was young, I was thinking about it this other day, you know, when you have a bit of an evil gazing moment. And I was going, when I was younger, I remember thinking, oh, I don't like many of the female parts. I want to play the bloke parts. They just seem to be more, well, they are more interesting generally, yeah. you know what I mean? The script's the most important thing. I have a look at the script. I mean, obviously, with things like Peter Lou, there is no script, but it's Mike Lee, so you, you know, you just go, if you get asked, you say yes, and then you just yeah. hope for the best that you might appear in it, you might end up on the courtroom floor, but, you know, yeah. working with somebody like Mike's just an experience in itself. But, yeah, and just really, like Funny Cow was a project that the writer Tony Pitts came to me and said, somebody said to me, I should write something for you. Have you got any, any ideas? We are working on this thing called the Red Riding trilogy and I'd said I've always been fascinated with working men's clubs because I went as a kid I said but like Marty Kane and the women in those clubs how they survived in the 70s and 80s I mean can't imagine it's you know it's perfect now for a female so you know Tony went away and wrote that for me and like Nico came as an idea because I'd always been obsessed with her and you know that scene in and you know especially a time in Manchester yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? My big turning point in life was punk 1976, and that led nicely into, you know, me getting into music, getting into a band myself. But with being in the Hacienda and seeing Nico at the bar, because I was obviously a massive 60s psychedelic music fan, and I couldn't get my head around how these two worlds had, had crossed paths. I was one of Velvet Underground, stood at the bar in the um, in the Hacienda, and Joe Strummer, you'd see Joe Strummer walking through the Hacienda as well. But yeah, I remember thinking think it was quite bizarre that Nico had ended up in Manchester, and that's where she was still pretty much based when she died, innit? Even though she died abroad. Yeah, but that is it, isn't it? You go, what, what? And then when you start researching, you go, yeah, it's Manchester sort of seeing the perfect fit for her. I know everyone said it's because the gear was cheap, you know what I mean? <laughs> cheap clubs at the time, wasn't it? Cheaper. But it's funny you say that I was thinking again the other day about the Hacienda. I remember being in one night and seeing Hulk Hogan and Ivory Tilsley at the bar. I mean, that club <laughs> just used <laughs> I remember going, what fat somebody have I had something more than I thought I'd had? That's madness, isn't it? What, what, what a vision that again, it's a sick one. There's a short <laughs> film. Yeah. You mentioned funny cow. That was um I saw that at a private viewing at this home cinema. The particular scene where you as a little girl is getting beaten by a dad, Stephen Graham. Incredible bit of acting. I found that really one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. But then the um the suicide scene. In the in the, the club toilet, I thought that again incredible because you're just thinking any minute they're going to the door's going to shut and you're not going to see what's happening. Was was that was that a tough film to make? I know there's funny bits in it, like the the mule train thing was stunning, you know. But okay. was it a tough film to make? That do you find it quite dark? 
you know what? It, it, I say, sometimes you have to be careful because you sound like you're a bit perverse, but it was great fun. So Tony Pitts had written it, who plays Bob, who's like a really great mate. And then Tony got all his friends in, because Tony used to run comedy clubs, so he gave John Bishop like one of his big breaks. Tony used to play Archie in Emmerdale, and he's done loads of things now. He's in Peaky Blinders, and yeah. he's fab, you know, because he's pals with Richard Hawley. So Richard came along and did the music and was in it, and Corinne Bailey Ray, and... I had my mate Christine Bottomley, Stephen Graham's a pal, so he said he'd come and do it. So you just had this Paddy Considine who me and Tony had worked with on Red Riding, that's how we'd met him. And originally, Martin Freeman was playing that part, and then he pulled out. And when Martin pulled out, the money just went. You know, there was we had some investment, and people went, well, no Martin Freeman, no money. So we sort of had to go, like, capping on to Paddy going, would you do? I mean, it's it's that's what's depressing about this industry. I couldn't finance a film, so we needed a male of a name, you know, man of a male actor of a name to, to do it. So Paddy very generously went, "Go on then, you know, I'll I'll come and do it," um, and he was brilliant in it. So we got the film off and going, but it had been nine years to make that film. Really, we've had that script nine years. Nobody wanted to make it. Everyone kept saying it's offensive, and we're like, what? <laughs> you know, it was it was of its time. It's very much. I mean, somebody wrote a review and said this is the most offensive film I've ever seen in my life, and I was like, "You've obviously got no connection to the seventies." You know what I mean? You can't rewrite history. You because we'll never learn if we don't look back and go, "Oh my God, is that what it was like?" We'll we'll never we'll keep we'll not keep moving forward. You know what I mean? And it was great fun. Adrian Shergold, who directed it, Tony Slaterling, who shot it, DOP, who I did Shameless with. So it was like I just it was like playing with a gang of pals. Diane, I got Diane Morgan. Right, yeah. Said to Diane, will you come and be in it? So we just pulled loads of favours. So, so it's a bunch of mates working together. Yeah, and you, it's very rare you get that. And everyone was just really into the script. I mean, the subject matter was dark, obviously. Yeah. But I think there was hope in it. That's what I really loved about it. And I loved her character. Yeah. You know, that she wasn't... Originally in the script, there's a scene where Tony's character, Bob's dying in the hospital. And we, it was the first scene we shot. And in the script, I sort of hugged him, uh, funny cow hugged him and said, you know, I forgive you. And we both had a cry. And Tony was really going for it, <laughs> doing his best acting. And he was, I just, I had a, mum, a light bulb moment where I just went, she doesn't like him. She couldn't care less. He ruined her life. You know what I mean? So... Yeah. Tony was like waiting for me to say these lines, I forgive you and hug you. And I was like, I can't actually say it. And it was great because it was an atmosphere that you could do that. I wouldn't normally do that on the set. And then Adrian, the director, went, right, go on, leave, go outside, go down the lift, stand outside the hospital, do what you want. And I went outside and just shouted, bye, Bob, and started laughing. I'd lived almost. That was I'd lived. And then that was it. And I went, right, I've got her now. She's not, no. Because it's always, why do, why do those perpetrators of those crimes always sort of get forgiven you know what I mean yeah. redemption well and I just saw you know and Tony was cool with that and Adrian the director so we so being able to play like that because it is acting is playing yeah. I think you know you've got to have a bit of fun and be creative and you know a bit ad hoc and info and so it was really freeing you know so the other extreme then when you said that obviously funny cow there's a lot of really funny bits in it going over to play Myra Inley how, how profound a a career thing was that well again I think naivety's got me a long way because I remember a friend I had a friend years ago Emma she came to stay and I just had me her bleach for Veronica and Shameless that platinum blonde <laughs> and I remember she I came 
downstairs and she went, oh my God, do you know who you look like? And I said, is it Myra Hindley? And I was like, thanks, Emma. You know, we sort of <laughs> laughed. And then um, my partner, Pav, is an art director, so he works behind the camera. And he'd said, oh, my friend has told me that he's scouting for locations. They're going to do See No Evil, this show, See No Evil about Myra Hindley. And I went, oh. So I rung my agent. I went, have they cast it? And she said, no. I said, I want an audition for Myra Hindley. And she went, really? I went, yeah, I mean, what an amazing part. You know, just not thinking. And I had some good mates at the time who'd been offered auditions and they were really toying with whether they should go for it or not. Mm. But I just started thinking as a challenge, as an actor, those yeah. are the parts that you want. And I think I'm quite good at protecting myself from going too dark, too far into, you know, sometimes you can't help it. But I think sometimes you can, there's points where you have to go, it is acting. You you don't have to judge. Yeah, you don't have to let it all inside, do you? Yeah, and some some actors do, and I, you know, it's the way they work. But I think it can be quite unhealthy. Yeah. So, but again, it was four brilliant actors: Matthew McNulty, local lad, Joe Froggett, uh, Sean Harris, the four of us, and we were just really tight and really worked hard. And and again, those jobs. Again, you can't say enjoyable about something like that because those people were monsters and it was horrendous. But having the opportunity to try and somewhere to work out somebody's psychological makeup, but then working with, you know, not just those four. I mean, we had an amazing cast. You can't help, but there's a, there's a fulfilment that comes from doing good work with good people with a great script. And, and the families were brilliant and behind it. You know, Winnie Johnson came to set you know Keith uh, Bennett's mum I yeah. mean that was quite upsetting you know obviously I mean for her but you know and always remembering the impact that, that it had on people and the impact it had on you know obviously the families and friends but Manchester I mean mm. you know it, it, the impact that that then had on you know those crimes had on the city for a long time really yeah. about because it, it unheard of especially a woman being involved in I was a child when it happened. I remember my parents talking about it. I remember driving over the moors and my mum and dad pointing out where it had all happened and why, why they'd been digging. It was all very current for me at the time. A tragic moment, but great that people are still telling the story. What kind of work do you turn down, Maxine? Do you get some stuff put in front of you and say, that's cack, I'm not getting involved with that one? What kind of stuff is it that you avoid doing? You know what, again, I'll get sent a script. And, you know, I mean, I, I will never, I never got, oh, I turn that down, you know, I never do that in, in public. But the stuff that you send, that I get sent and I read, and there's a few things that I've read and gone, not for me, and they've been big hits. You know what I mean? For me, I look, you know, and people send you stuff and it's a female-led drama. But I always go, but what is the story? What has happened? I get sent a lot. It's usually women of, a, you know, my age, so it's less stab at either relationship or you know you know dwindling fertility and then maybe goes off the rails or gets punished for having a bit of a sexual or you know intellectual liberation and then I find all that a bit there always seems to be women seem to get punished along the way but I'm just conscious about the stories that you tell and the messages in those stories what are the favourite parts that you played? What the, give us two or three of the favourite things that you've done in your, in your career across stage tv or film I think stage was definitely, I played uh, Blanche Dubois in Street Carnage and Desire. Um, I love that part. But, and I think for me, you know, if, if, if I decide to at drama school when I was 21, I'm going to play Blanche Dubois at some point, they would have laughed, you know, they'd have laughed me out of the school. You know, there was certain casting that I was 
you know, I think somebody told me I was too earthy to play Tennessee Williams. There's some nonsense gets spoken at drama <laughs> school, you know. You just have to really just stick it in, you know, throw it out. Cause, yeah. And so I think that definitely stage, I really enjoyed it. And I, I remember I did a little job that didn't get much attention. There was a tr trouble with the rights. It was called, it was a remake of Room at the Top. Yeah. And me and Matthew McNulty, again, who was in um, See No Evil with me, we did that with Jenna Coleman. Um, so we did a remake with a brilliant uh, director called Ashley Walsh. And it was just one of those jobs. Was really, it was just really beautiful. And when you work on those jobs at a given time and there's detail and the director really invests. And I think Funny Cow was, you know, the same. But I think one of the most fun I've had on a job was Early Doors. Yeah. I did the first series of Early Doors. And that was like just hanging out with your mates. We literally filmed in a pub and then probably spent all night till about four o'clock in a pub. <laughs> or the press club. Like and then, the, yeah, the press club, yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, the dirty, the filthy press club. So, yeah. so, you know, coming out when people are going to work. And then we'd go back and film and we just... It was a really tight unit, you know, it was just great fun. And are you more likely to take a part if it fits in with your, your sort of political views as well? Yeah, but I don't necessarily have to play the sort of political crusader or the left, the lefty or whatever. I'm quite happy to sign up for the bad day as long as the story has the outcome that, you know, you want. You know, I'm not, I'm not into this, I must be liked, you know. They're sometimes the most boring characters, to be honest. Let's talk about Manchester, Maxine. I know you are yeah. born and bred Manchester. Lived in London for a big chunk of your life, didn't you? But what do you think it is about Manchester people that makes, makes us so brilliant? <laughs> well, I think I think sense of humour. That's one thing we can definitely laugh at ourselves. And I just think there's just get up and go, isn't there? There's just that. Just get on with it. Have a go at it. You know, there's a real creative spirit there. I think. But I think people are grafters. We don't expect anything on a plate, do we? So we're seeing that particularly now. As I, mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to sit here blowing our own trumpets, but that's pretty much what this podcast is all about. It's about the spirit of the city. We're not saying we're better than anybody else. It's just we're looking at why we are how we yeah. are and why it's such a beautiful place to live. But during the lockdown right now, it's like everywhere I look, and maybe it's because I'm in an industry that's full of creative people like yourself, but everywhere I look, people are just, it's incredible what they're doing to adapt yeah. to the situation, not, not only through the necessity of having to pay your bills, but to help the community and to help the homeless. You know, like some of the things that I'm seeing people doing, you know, Mary Ellen McTagg, the chef, I don't even familiar what she's set up. She's got all these key Manchester chefs very successful chefs whose restaurants might never open again. And they're, they're creating, they're making hundreds of meals a week for the homeless and for people on the, that working on the front line, and, front line and all that. And it's beautiful to see, like you said, just get up and go, get on with it. I'm not saying the rest of the world isn't doing that, but I think in Manchester at the moment, some beautiful things happening. Well, we're such a, you know, we've got an amazing, you know, Manchester and Salford, an amazing progressive history. That's what yeah. I love about, you know, I mean, I know, I'm, you know, I'm biased because I've, you know, I've got a big, interest in politics and it's one of the things that really drives me but you just look as just as a city looking after its own you know what I mean yeah and sometimes the people who are put in positions to do that are not quite fulfilling that so it's that people then take it into their own hands you know you do you know the homeless situation in Manchester is just devastating it's heartbreaking you know yeah to think that we've let that happen in our city I, th I always say we're all one one or two pay slips away from 
being out there or, you know and a lot of it's mental health issues and it's not just oh just chuck somebody in oh we'll give you a flat it's not that but just knowing that people care and respect you know, because you know what I mean I think that goes a long way and I think people do I think people have really been reaching out to you know vulnerable people in the community and it's really heartening it makes you proud you know Manchester I've got a feeling that at the other end of this lockdown thing that people are generally going to be more tolerant and caring of the, you know, the, the fellow, the fellow man. And I think hopefully the, the homeless will be addressed a lot more seriously than it has been. I know Andy Burnham's doing his best with it, but I think the, the public at large might be a bit more sympathetic to people going through that now, you know, hopefully. Well, well that's it because people now who probably thought, you know, they're in secure jobs and financially secure will now be realising how, how fragile the whole thing, you know, system is. Do you find when you walk around the streets of Manchester that like you, you think about how, how privileged we are to be walking along the same streets as like L.S. Lowry and Emmeline Pankhurst and Turing, you know, these people walked on the same, yeah. the same pavements that we were walking on day in, day out. Does that excite you that, that you're part of that heritage? I drives me mad is that Actually, the great, you know, the great inventors, the great political figures, literary figures, musical figures from Manchester, sometimes it's forgotten that not, not within Manchester, but the outside world, we did produce so much, the great, great Manchester Lancashire, you know what I mean? And I think sometimes people tend to forget. With everyone who names that you look at, though, it's, it's monumental what they created. It's not just like, you know, they built a really nice building. It's like they split the atom. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if we just had one of those names, if it, if, it was, if it was just Pankhurst, if it was just Lowry, it'd be amazing. But it's like there's dozens of them that just yeah. create some of the most monumental cultural things. Well, I always think it's like Salford. I live in, you know, I live in Salford. And we, Salford had the first library. You know what I mean? The first library was opened in Salford. You go, come on. You know what I mean? But the way <laughs> people look, look yeah. down at Northern is still the still still issues it's ridiculous you know yeah. it's so old-fashioned but we still get there's still this divide that drives me nuts yeah. you know so what's coming up next maxine career-wise got anything uh, anything on the horizon i've got a, a film coming well coming it's quite interesting because it's coming out online but i've got a film coming out that i'm in uh in june i think it's going to be curzon horn cinema it's streaming i think it'll have a cinema release you know hopefully once all this is calm down but it's called um it's not a comedy <laughs> it sounds like it's called fanny lie delivered and i'd sort of describe it as like a folk western it's set in sort of 17th century nine years after the english civil war Brilliant. and i play a, a a woman in a unhappy marriage in a small holding and two ranters uh, from the ranter movement arrive and spin a world into disarray so that's well, I think it's it's sort of mid to end of June that's that's coming on streaming. If they did a remake of Dinner Ladies, would you still be into doing it? Because you've come so far, haven't you? In, in terms, I mean, that was a monumental start to your career, wasn't it? It yeah, was a dream yeah. gig. But when you look at what you've done since, you've just moved so far away from what that was. If they remade it, would you be up for doing it? Not that they've got all the cast, obviously, Victoria's not with us anymore, but um, would you be up for doing something there, revisiting that? It'd be quite funny to go back and find out where she would be, where Twinkle would be at sort of, although 45, I think it was like, twi I think it was 23, 24 when I played her and she was supposed to be like a teen, so maybe a bit like late 30s, but yeah, I'd love yeah. to see what, what she was up to. You mentioned a lot of names I've been, I've been talking, some people from Manchester, some people from 
afar, but name me two or three of your favourite humans of Manchester, Maxine. Oh, I'd, well, I, I mean, talking to the Pankhurst, but my favourite is Sylvia Pankhurst. She's my, she's my favourite. I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to say something then. I'm going to get, I'm not a massive Emily in Pankhurst fan. <laughs> I'm going to get lynched. I don't know if knows I live. But Sylvia's, Sylvia's the gal for me. I don't know, there's, there's, I mean, just Betty Tebbs, who was uh, from Rochdale, who was an amazing woman who fought for union rights and women's rights. She passed away uh, about four years ago. Ruth and Eddie Frow started the Working Class Movement Library. I mean, not Salford born and bred, but the impact they had on Salford as a city. I know there is a very, you know, Salford and Manchester are very different cities, but there's times when I think we're allowed to come together as one. Yeah, totally, totally. As one. You know, but there's so many, there's so many that people, man, and I think, man, you know, sometimes think, oh, I'm a cliche because I look at all my influences and they seem to be for me. But that's, you know, the musical landscape, you know, bands like The Carpets and obviously, you know, The Smiths, Stone Roses, Mondays, all those, for me, discovering all that music then led on to a bigger creative life, like getting into literature and, you know, moving through a whole canon of, creativity and it, it started here and it, it what you know you guys did to then inspire a generation to you know to move forward and dig deep into what else was going on out there films you know theatre it's funny when you like just listen to you talking there for the last 30 seconds or so really I can't imagine anybody in the world listening to this or seeing these clips and not wanting to come and live in Manchester it's very idyllic in it this place it is and it's it's small enough, you know, to make those connections. You know, I was just thinking, again, a good mate, with a mutual mate, Johnny Maru, I did a, a single with. I mean, I, again, I keep saying to myself, that, that podgy 15-year-old, if somebody said you're going to make a record with Johnny Maru, be like, you're on glue, that ain't going to happen. And the fact that, and I think there was, you know, I mean, Johnny's is a super, super special human being anyways. I think he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And so... I mean, talented beyond imagination, but obviously very generous. But there is that, there's, there's some assholes in Manchester, we know that. <laughs> but I do think, you know, there's an openness. That's, that's, that's another podcast, isn't it? Assholes yeah, in Manchester. Manchester. We'll do that when this one, when we run out of ideas on this one, we'll start that one. Uh, before you go, Maxine, I want you to describe Manchester in three words creative, community, vibrant. Beautiful. Maxine Peake. Thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you. It's been so lovely to meet you. Bucket list ticked off. And that was Maxine Peake. Join me on the next episode where I'll be talking to legendary broadcaster and TV personality, Vernon Kay. Don't forget to follow us on social media, subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester, rate us, feel free to leave us a review as well. We always like to hear your feedback. Stay safe, look after each other, Manchester. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.